welcome to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. I hope everyone is following the social distancing regulations as right now, that is the best we can do to keep ourselves safe. Our theme for the next eight podcasts is the impact of having a parent or a sibling in prison, whether that loved one is guilty or innocent. In a very real sense, the family does the time with the person inside. I've invited a friend to open up this discussion. Her name is Amy Friedman. We have never met in person, but I feel a bond with her because she knows the workings of a prison as both a reporter and then as the wife of an offender. I taught for four years in a maximum security prison for 2,300 men, and for the last eight years, I have visited several of those men in prison. So we have something in common. Back in 2009, Amy wrote an essay for the New York Times in a section that comes out every Sunday called Styles. Her piece was part of the weekly column called Modern Love. I loved her story so much that I found a way to email her, and we've been friends ever since. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thank you, Harriet. And it is impossible for me to believe we haven't met in person. (laughs) Well, one day, one day. How about we begin with the story behind your essay that was called Kept Together by the Bars Between Us? Sure. Um, so to to connect those two dots of my having been a newspaper reporter was actually a columnist oh. and, um, and then married to a man in prison was that in um, 1992, I was a newspaper columnist and I lived in a city that was filled with, within a hundred miles, there were about 40 prisons. And mm. I realized I didn't know anything about prison, really, other than, you know, kind of popular TV, um, some reporting. And so I got myself invited to um, to go in to write a series of articles. My idea was to interview all people who were involved in prison. So to interview guards, to interview inmates to interview family members, to interview psychologists, teachers, and so on, and to write kind of profiles. So to paint a picture of the universe that is prison. Um, and the, there's a long, long story to this, and I, we don't have time, but um, I wound up falling in love with a man who was in prison. Um, we ended up getting married and he had two children who ended up becoming my stepdaughters, but I don't even call them stepdaughters who became my daughters. Um, and I learned in, in a really intimate way how prison impacts the families of prisoners. Um, we were married for seven and a half years, six of which little of more than six, he was inside and he was paroled and came home, um, and our marriage ended um, about 18 months later. 
Um, the girls, importantly, never, I never divorced them. I did divorce him. Um, that article was, came from my effort over the years following our divorce to, um, I mean, my whole life I had been a writer and I, and I kind of unpack things by writing, um, find ways to understand my own story and to understand the world a little better. And so I began writing about, about the marriage and, and started with that, that piece focused on what happened when he came home for him. He, the piece is, is about the way he began building walls around our home, literal walls. Mm-hmm. Um, and that ended up growing into a memoir, which was published uh, a couple years later. Um, but that story that connected you and me um, just grew out of my trying to understand what happened when he came home, what happened, why the marriage dissolved, what had generated the marriage to begin with, and and to understand myself a little better. Mm. Um, <clears throat> are you willing to read a little section of that essay for us? Oh, of the essay, yes. Or would you prefer to read from your memoir? Um, either you know, um, <laughs> sorry, I was thinking about the memoir, but I'm happy to read from the essay. Okay. I'm just going to get it up in front of me for a second. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I, I think it's, um, I think I, I might skip around a little bit, but I'll read the opening and then move to sure. the part that I think is the gist of it. Okay. Um, it starts with, when we met... He had already served seven years of a 13 years to life sentence for murder. He was once a drug dealer and had shot and killed another dealer on a miserable spring morning in a little northern Ontario town. I was working as a newspaper columnist and had become intrigued by the prisons in Ontario and upstate New York. He was the chairman of the inmate committee at the first prison I visited. And initially he was hostile of me, wary of my intentions. The fact that we ultimately fell in love always arouses gasps of disbelief, but there wasn't much to it. We fell in love the way people do, the same way I had fallen in love with other men. Um, So that's where it opens. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm going to skip down to... um, uh, So this is me trying to kind of understand myself, okay, So maybe I just liked bringing warmth into a lonely man's life. Maybe the marriage was pure ego. But then I always thought every marriage is in some ways. And yes, he had his lines that casually tossed off. I want my daughters to meet you. They need to meet an impressive woman. Mm -hmm. Those are the kind of lines that work on women like me who like to think we are professional and cannot be conned. (laughs) And still some people said, oh, Amy, Amy, you fell for a con. Why do you think they call them cons? And God, could you ever, you know, but they never asked me outright, did you ever make love? Yes, we did. Every three months in a trailer on the prison grounds, behind walls and gates and under lock and key. And later I found out that guards could listen if they wanted to, because once one did, and he let me know that when I was leaving after one more goodbye. But I had never talked with anyone the way I talked with him. I had never had that kind of time. Nobody does. 
We talked for hours a day, often seven days a week for nearly seven years, sharing water or coffee, our feet sticking to the linoleum floors, backsides aching from hard shares, eyes stinging from smoke, hands sweaty from clutching each other across the table, hearts fluttering, limbs aching to touch, and listening to the loudspeaker. Friedman, come to the desk. Um, and then I think... Um, so um, I'm going to skip down again. I spent six New Year's days in prison visiting him, and this was year seven. I believed it would be the last, as his day parole hearing was in two months. Instead, I woke that morning on a cold, bitter day, knowing that something was wrong. The prison was several miles from the bungalow I bought one month before we married. I bought it because I wanted us to have a place of our own, a haven for him to come to one day, and a place of comfort for the girls and me. It was lopsided and badly insulated with yellow siding and a rickety roof, and it sat on the lip of the St. Lawrence River, and from every window I could see the water and towering pines and open land. On, the, <clears throat> on this spot on my sofa every night for all those six years, I'd sat and waited for his calls. I couldn't phone him. Prisoners have to call out, collect. And naturally, my phone bills were endless pages of collect calls. But I could never get enough of his voice, not even on those days when it was drenched with anger or suppressed fear. Everything about him turned my heart inside out. And even now, 10 years since I last saw him, I can hear the thick sadness in his throat and feel something that is no longer love but remains a kind of sweet sadness for all that was lost. Um, I think I'm going <laughs> to stop there. Unless sure, you'd like that's to read fine. More. No, that sounds, I wanted just a flavor. Um, modern love, uh, it's interesting. People didn't really know much about it. And now, uh, is it on it's Amazon hot. Prime? <laughs> yeah, it popped. Yes, it yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And tell us what they did with modern love. Uh, well, they well they made it into first a podcast, and actually the the piece that I did was read by the incomparably wonderful actress Cherry Jones. Um, so it has been translated to podcast. Who and she's a far better reader than I am. Um, <laughs> and uh, and now they've made it into a television show. Um, so there are hundreds and hundreds of them because it's been running for I want to say probably 12, 13 years. Um, so mine's not yet a television show, but we'll see. You never know. That's, that's <laughs> great. Yeah. And they're all so different. Uh, so every, uh, everyone has their own theme. Well, thanks for reading that. We, we know there's a good deal of research about the impact of having a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, uh, behind a husband, um, uh, behind bars. And we know that there are nearly 3 million children dealing yeah. with this issue in their lives. I'd like you to tell us what you know on a personal level, and then tell us what you decided to do about this challenge in the lives of so many children. Yeah. So, um, what I know began with, of course, my kids um, and myself to some degree. But I, I have to say that 
it was harder because because I had spent so many years um, as a writer and as a speaker and kind of out there believing in the importance of telling one's own truth. Um, I, I do teach still and taught for many years memoir and, and what I know about the healing power of telling your own story um, and speaking your truth is, is, is pretty deep. So I, what happened to me when one day I was a newspaper columnist visiting prison and treated with all the respect in the world and invited to come in and bring all my bags and paperwork and so on with me. And the next day after we got married, suddenly I was perceived in this entirely different way. I was suddenly someone who was to be looked at with suspicion, to be strip searched, to be, to be demeaned. Um, And I, I could, I could, fight back about that. I, I spoke out about it. Um, it wasn't that it didn't hurt. It wasn't that it wasn't painful. It wasn't that there wasn't a great deal of loss that came in the wake of this. Um, I was fired from my job. I was thrown off boards of directors. I lost friends. I lost family. Um, all of whom came back, my family, by the way. Mm. Um, but the girls, um, they had been very, very young. They had been three and six when their dad went to prison. And they had learned early on that um, there were people who were going to stigmatize them. And they had absorbed the shame of their father's deed. And they had learned never, ever, ever to talk about who their father was, where he was, or what they were experiencing. And one of the results of that, I mean, there, there are many results, and these are well-documented in the research, but what I saw and felt and experienced with them was depression, fear, social isolation. You know, I, I mean, the story I always that really resonates with me is I remember when my older daughter had a boyfriend and you know quite naturally he got it got to this point where he wanted to hear more about her family and rather than tell him the truth about her family she broke up with him and that that repeated itself that um happened again and again that anytime somebody was close enough to want to be to know more about who they really were rather than risk the stigma that might come with that they would break up or lose a friend or run away from an encounter in some way or another. They, there were frequently, we would visit their dad a lot. Um, and things happen when you visit. Um, I mentioned strip searches. I mean, when, when not infrequently, I mean, it wasn't all the time, but when, you know, somebody would go, okay, Friedman, come, come behind the wall here, you need to be strip searched. And that's really traumatizing for a child to see their parent treated that way. Um, And, you know, the kids would cry and, and, and the girls would just be very upset. And then the next day they would go to school. And so I would get these reports from their teachers that were, you know, child at risk reports. And I would, we would get called in to go, 
speak to the teachers. And I remember the girls just saying to me, Do, you're not allowed to tell anybody about where dad is. Mm. And so I would be sitting at these, these meetings with the teachers. And all I wanted to do was say, listen, you need to understand what they just went through yesterday. We were in a prison visiting room and here's what happened. And I would be, I mean, I, I joke, but it's not really a joke. I'd come out of those meetings with black and blue shins because they'd kick me under the table. (laughs) if It looked like I was about to tell anything true. And, you know, and I, and I would say, well, you know, Sarah's gone through a lot lately and, and they'd say, oh, you know, we have plenty of kids who are raised by single parents mm-hmm. or, oh, we have plenty of kids who are children of divorce. And I would, you know, and I just kind of say, well, it's a little more than that. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, I was never allowed to say it. So this, this trauma was not only trauma, but it was hidden yeah. trauma. Hidden. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're separated from someone they love. And yet that person is, is considered you know and I, I mean I often talk about how when kids have parents in the serv- in the services you know in the armed services people celebrate them and celebrate their parents and you know so it's really hard for those kids they miss their parent on holidays and they miss them all the time and they don't have dad there to say goodnight to or mom there to tuck them in but they know their parent is considered a hero Yes. Whereas these kids don't have mom and dad, mom or dad, or in some cases siblings to, to be there with them. And those people are considered less than human. Yeah. And, and so they, they can't even talk about their loss, what they're missing, um, what hurts, what's hard. Um, so the, the manifestation of that. Um, you know, in, in one of my kids, it, it manifested in deep depression. Um, my older daughter dropped out of school. That happens frequently um, because it just the strain of, of keeping that secret becomes too great. Um, and one of them, it, she was very anxious. And to this, I mean, they're both adults now and they still they still struggle. Um that like I said, the social isolation, the losing friends, and usually when they did, if they did tell a friend, the friends were pretty sympathetic, but, mm-hmm. but they had learned when they were young, you know, they were suddenly not allowed to go to people's homes, mm-hmm. right? These were like the bad kids from the bad family. And so they didn't want to risk it. Um, and heart spaciness, you know, I, like I say, like my, my older daughter would get spacey in school cause she'd be thinking about some mm-hmm. trauma she just endured sure. and not being able to pay attention to geometry. Um, and so she'd do poorly in school. Um, so um, I, it made me so unhappy and, and so kind of eager to find a way to help kids like them. Um, so several years after um, my ex-husband and I divorced, I remarried. And um, my, my current husband, I call him, he's the last one, I'm done. <laughs> my, my, my husband, Dennis, 
um, is a um, now just retired high school teacher. And um, when we first got married and, and I moved to Los Angeles to be with him, um, I began going into his classrooms to teach writing under grants from writing organizations. And in his classrooms, I mean, and he, you know, because he's very close to my daughters also, and so he learned about this particular kind of trauma through them. Um, we were both we were both paying attention to if are there kids who are going through this. So what would happen is like I would be working with a kid in a class and and he would say something like, well, yeah, well, my dad's not around. And uh, you, we, we don't talk that much. Or, you know, they would say certain things and I would say to myself, mm, prison, yeah. right? <laughs> like I just, I could, I was recognizing cues. Yeah. Um, and then I was also reading research where one in 14 children in the United States has a parent a parent who is or has been incarcerated, which means in any classroom you walk into, there are likely to be two or more kids. doesn't matter where you are. Um, and so for years, Dennis and I had these conversations about what can we do for these kids? There, there must be some way we could provide support. And um, there is, a long story to this that, that involves um, a student that Dennis had who kind of brought this home for him um, when he was arrested and Dennis went to visit him and um, came home from that visit and said, my God, now I really understand what it means to visit someone you love in prison. Mm. Um, and we... So we just kept talking and talking about it. And finally, one day, it was almost like a light bulb went off. But I, I said, you know, think about what happens in schools when there are clubs for LGBTQ population. Mm -hmm. The whole way in which teenagers and therefore, as, as things happened, the whole society views gay and transgender and bisexual youth changed in, in 20, 25 years. Um, and part of that, I think, grew out of the LGBTQ clubs in schools. So we found the man who started the very first club for gay students in America in 1988 hmm. in one high school in Massachusetts. We borrowed, we, we stole his, we asked if we could look at his original proposal. And we wrote a proposal for the school where Dennis was then teaching, which was Venice High School in Los Angeles, um, to start a club for kids in high school who had been impacted by prison, jail, or detention. Um, and we used the, the, the premise of the original um, club for gay students, which was no one gets sent to this club. It's all self-selection. No one has to say why they're there. And there must be food. <laughs> so, <laughs> I like that. Um, food is, first of all, you know, there's the one piece of the food is 
breaking bread with people breaks down boundaries. Sure does. But the other, the other piece of it is kids can say and frequently do that they have just come for the food. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an it's a easy way to walk into the room. Sure. So we don't turn people away because they're there for the food. I mean, we figure, okay, probably hungry. Um, and who knows, maybe, maybe there's a story and maybe there isn't, but then they'll understand they don't belong and not come back, which, which will happen now and then. Most often what happens is because kids come in and they say, um, I just came for the food. And they stay and then eventually explain that, oh, and by the way, my dad's been in prison since I was two, or my brother was arrested when I was 11, or whatever the story is. Um, And so that happened. The very first club was launched in 2013 at Venice High School. And my favorite story is uh, be, before the, you be, before you tell okay, us your favorite sorry. story, I can talk that's, forever. That's all right. <laughs> we, I would would love it if you would be able to come back and we can talk some more in depth about Pops the Club because we're just you know at the very beginning of its formation and it's been around for a while and I'd like you to tell us so much more, which I know you can do. So would you be willing to come back and talk to us again? I would love to. All right. Wonderful. So uh, I just want to say thank you to our listeners for spending some time with us today. I hope that you have gotten some insight into the impact of prison on children, and we will be talking about it for many weeks to come. Um, Please come back and listen again and stay safe. (laughs) 